Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Senator Mark Mullen. Welcome, Senator. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, as you, uh, if you are keeping track of local politics at all, you know that uh, the senator has is the incumbent. He's in the fifth district, which includes not just Carnation, but all the way to Issaquah and Fall City, and you, you, you've got a big, big lump there. But since we've been, yeah, we go down to early, Black Diamond. I know. Yeah, you know, I so that's a big chunk, and it's varied. Um, it goes from what I consider pretty urban to pretty rural. Um, that must be difficult to try and balance all the needs. Uh, have, have you found it uh, a difficult task over the last few years? Well, it, it's always fit me. I feel if you look at the 49 different legislative districts in the state, ours, I think, is the most in the middle of the political spectrum out of all of them for all the reasons you just described. I mean, you have parts of Issaquah that are fairly urban, but you have parts, you know, in Carnation where you feel like you might as well be in farm country back in the Midwest when you're in Carnation and you go down to Black Diamond and it's a completely different feel. So I, that's what I like about the district is that it isn't a Seattle district. I mean, our district is diverse and it always has fit me well. So... I kind of like the way it's set up right now. Great. And I want to be clear because I know that during election years for incumbents, things get a little little uh, uh, difficult. You have to make sure that you separate what you're doing in your current job with what you're doing as a candidate. So I want to be very clear that we're having this interview today as a candidate and that you have an opponent who's running against you. And we have invited her on the show and she has indicated that she would like to, but we haven't established that interview at this point. So hopefully we'll get her uh, a show with her input as well. But for this show, we're talking uh, with you, Senator, and so it's going to be all about you. <laughs> all gotcha. you <laughs> Good. Um, let me just do a little bit better job of introducing you than I, I have uh, done so far because I have a tendency to jump into a conversation before I do all my uh, cross all my T's and, and dot all my I's. Uh, you have been endorsed by the Seattle Times. Uh, editorial board, as well as a, a number of other um, organizations and individuals. And uh, they say that Senator Mark Mullet is an outstanding representative of the 5th District between Esquaw and Snoqualmie Pass. And you've been, you've proven to be a strong advocate for education, taxpayers, and transportation, voting to increase school funding, limit taxes, and improve Highway 18. So I thought that their summary uh, was pretty, a, a pretty good two-sentence summary. Um, you have certainly spent a lot of time improving schools, and we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about traffic congestion. I have a question about road repair, and we're just going to go. And I'm going to ask you about your record on improving schools. What does it mean, first of all, in your uh, mind to improve schools? Oftentimes that just means increased funding. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your dedication to schools, why you're so dedicated to schools, and what you have done uh, during your um, uh, ad administration? Do we say administration when it's a senator? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't think of myself either. that way. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's a great... Tenure. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great question. And uh, I think for starters, I currently have the record Olympia for the most kids in the public school system. I have six kids. I have a fifth grader uh, in elementary school. I have a sixth grader in middle school. My older four kids are at Isquah High School. And my wife's also a teacher in the Esquire School District. She teaches right now at Sunny Hills Elementary School. And so I think for me, that's kind of been the backbone of 
you know, it, it is important to me as a person in the sense that all my kids are going through the system. I, I think to your point of the things we've been able to do, I've been in office. I, I've been, I think we've made more progress in public education in the last eight years than we did in the previous 40 years. And the first thing was lowering class sizes. We had to put extra money in. So every district, so we started sending out more money to the districts like Riverview so we could actually hire more people in kindergarten and third grade. That was where we decided to start making progress on class size. And, and it worked. I mean, we got down to the point where people, if they want to get the state money for class size, they have to get kindergarten through third grade down to 17 kids on average, you know, in those classes. And when I got elected, there was, you know, you would have a second or third grade classroom with 28 kids in it. It was overwhelming for the teachers. And, and so there's a lot of progress there. And full day kindergarten was something like when my kids went through kindergarten, like the district only paid for half day. If you wanted your kid to go for a full day, you had to literally write a check for 2,500 bucks. And, you know, that was extremely unfair to a lot of families who weren't in a position to write that check. And one of the things the state changed after I got elected was we said, we're going to pay for full day kindergarten. We don't think there should be, you know, it shouldn't just be something that families can afford it, get the benefit of. It should be something everybody gets to receive. And, and the final thing is we finally gave the teachers a long overdue pay raise. I mean, in Riverview, the average pay increase, you know, you're looking at 19 to $20,000 per teacher. Their pay's gone up, you know, from the 2013 to the 18-19 school year, which is the most recent data we have. There, there's been pay increases since that, but I always try to make sure I'm only referencing the most recent official state published data. And, and so I'm extremely proud that the teachers in Riverview and throughout our district finally got the pay increase they deserve. I'm going to ask you a question about that. As a former teacher, um, that I, I spent four years being a, a sub uh, in Bellevue School District, and okay. I often say, if, if I, 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 there were a couple of schools I went to that I loved. I did uh, elementary, uh, not a lot, mostly uh, middle school and high school. But you're right about that elementary. That is exhausting. That is just an exhausting job. Um, so yay for you for recognizing that. Um, but I have to say that um, didn't a lot of this uh, uh, teacher pay increase come because of the uh, lawsuit, because of the um, the um, judicial findings that the state had to yeah. come into compliance with it. Okay. Um, so you really didn't have any choice as a legislator um, to do something about that teacher salary. Well, that was the Am big right? debate, right? Because I think, well, I mean, that was a big debate we had in Olympia. There was obviously a group of people that said, screw the state Supreme Court. We don't have to do anything they tell us. They can't make us do anything, right? What are they... They don't really have an enforcement mechanism. And that was a big, but that was an argument that went on for the whole first four or five years I was down there. And the argument I made back to people, this is the right thing to do. Like we want to pay our teachers better. And so I was like, you have to get out of, you know, picking a, a legal battle with the state Supreme court and just start focusing, okay, how do we reprioritize our state budget to make sure that public education is getting the focus that it deserves. And, and I think you could have definitely met the court's criteria without doing everything that we did. I think we went above and beyond of what, you know, was being implied we had to do just to get out of the lawsuit. But I am proud of all the investments that we made. Like I said, and there wasn't a layup. There was a large group of people that thought we should just 
you know, their exact phrase was tell the state Supreme Court to go pound sand. And, and I had to counter with the idea that this is important because this is what our kids need. And this is what our families want is the best public schools we can get in our state. Okay. But then let's talk about the opposite side of that. That's all great and good, you know, for teacher salaries. And, uh, but, but now there's discussion and there seems to be a problem that, you know, now there may be some problems in districts and what's happening is teacher salaries went up, but um, the, the non-certified people are being laid off. They, they can't afford it. And some of that I'm sure is COVID, but some of that I have been told is because of um, the, the massive increases that went into teacher salaries a year or so ago. Well, that plays directly, you know, of where I agree with everything you just said. And that's what I stood up to the Washington Education Association when, you know, we pushed out a lot of money. This, a lot of this money had a lot of flexibility, you know, in terms of what districts could do with it. And my argument was you have to prioritize hiring, you know, the mental health counselors in the schools, hiring the nurses, hiring the support staff, because I think there's a lot of teachers, like they want extra paraeducators in their classroom because it makes their life easier and they know it's better outcomes for the kids. And this was the conflict, I think, that I had with the teachers' union because I think they definitely – felt like I was, by me trying to prioritize those things, they felt that I was making it harder for them to be able to advocate for additional pay increases going forward. And my counter to them was our state constitution now guarantees teachers a cost of living adjustment. So the state is going to keep up with teacher pay going forward, and they have to trust that we will uphold our end of that bargain. And we've made that commitment. I know I'm going to honor it. And, and I think that means that going forward, since the state's going to be the one providing the pay increases each year, we have to let the other money that districts raise locally go into the programs that are going to change kids' lives. Like you just described, hiring extra support staff in the school, like paraeducators. And, and I think that's going to be, and that's a lot of the friction in this debate right now is, is around that exact issue you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, and in all fairness, I mean, teacher pay went up, what, about 35% over the last five years? That's exactly. a pretty hefty pay increase. I can't yeah, think of but, uh, too many uh, workers who wouldn't say, yeah, I'll take a 35% increase over a five-year period. Uh, what about those counselors and nurses and librarians? And, you know, have they had an increase? And it doesn't sound like they have. So I understand your point that, you know, maybe, okay, we, we reach some sort of equity with the teachers themselves as far as pay increases. Um, and, of course, no one, no one ever thinks to get paid enough. None of us do. <laughs> um, so yes, of course. I mean, if you went through and gave more, more increases, I would take it. You'd take it. Every teacher would take it. But what about those uh, ancillary people? You know, what increases have they seen over the last five years? It seems like it's kind of fair to me um, to start looking at those folks too, because they're integral to the system. That's my two cents. Yeah, no, I like it. And I think, I mean, this, they talk a lot. My opponent references a lot the op-ed I wrote in the Seattle Times in 2019 on the exact issue we're talking about. And I made it crystal clear in this op-ed that said, hey, I'm not arguing any teacher take a pay cut. Not at all. Like the teachers got their raise. They deserve their raise. I'm just saying going forward, local levy dollars should be prioritized so we can do everything you just described. And, and that was my op-ed and that's the op-ed my opponent refers to all the time as saying, oh, Mark's bad-mouthing teachers. And, and it's like, no, that's not the case at all. Like, we, we did the pay raise, and now we have to make sure the, the holistic view of the school is important. It's not just certified teachers. We have a lot of other important people inside a school building, and we have to make sure that 
local levy dollars are allowed to support those people going forward. And that was my entire op-ed in the Seattle Times that was, you know, that was published in the spring of 2019. And your wife being a teacher, what does she think about that controversy? Does she give you grief well, over I mean, it or is she on? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think a lot of my views come from my wife's experience, right? I think my wife's, I think her experience, and she's primarily taught second grade, is you will have a couple kids in your class, you know, who are special education kids, and they're on the autistic spectrum. They need a lot of extra help. And her point as a teacher, she's like, I would happily be willing to give up, you know, part of my pay if, it, if I knew it was going to go to hire an extra pair of educator that could come into my class on a regular basis and help those kids with math, help those kids with reading. She's like, I can't do it, even though my class sizes are smaller, even though I might only have 18 or 19 kids in my class now. Like, I want those two kids to get a good educational experience. And if I spend all my time just focused on those two kids, well, now the other 17 kids are getting a raw deal, right? And so I think my wife, to her credit, views it the same way. It's like a holistic thing if she wants what's best for the kids. And she knows that means that sometimes you're not, you're not going to choose your own pay increase if, if, you could, if you knew that money was going to go to hiring an extra paraeducator to help you out in the classroom with, with those kids who need extra support. Well, especially if it means paraeducators are having to be laid off uh, because then you don't have any support uh, in your classroom. So I can see that. Um, okay, so, you know, we've kind of tackled education, but we haven't mentioned, you know, the elephant in the room, which is nobody's in school. <laughs> what, what, what's your view when people should return to school? I mean, I, I laid out a plan, which I think <laughs> ruffled some feathers, but it was definitely saying that I think special education students and, you know, English language learners, ELL students, and the kindergartners and first graders, I think we should have had them in school on day one. I was arguing that we should have had a special session in Olympia this summer to lay out whatever extra financial resources the state needed to provide, we should have provided them. And, and we should have said, okay, we know these kids are going to have a hard time in an online environment. Let's start out in September with at least making sure the kids who we know need some in-person instruction are getting some in-person instruction. And now that obviously didn't happen. We didn't have a special session. But I still, that's my focus. And a lot of districts, to their credit now, are starting to look at trying to do exactly that. I know, I think it's across no Kwame, um, the homeless school district are trying to find ways to get kindergartners and first graders in the classroom, at least on a limited basis within the next month. And I think people are now, even as a cause now having special ed kids come into the school to get some hands-on, you know, instruction. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you have to start somewhere. You can't just send all the kids back right now. I understand that, but I'm saying you got to start chipping away at it and take the kids who really need to be back in the classroom and find a way to get them there safely. Well, your, your answer brought up another question that I have for you, and that is the special session. A lot of people are really puzzled why the governor has not called a special session. What's your feeling on that? Well, I mean, I, I've been completely in disagreement with the governor over the essential need of having a special session since COVID hit. And obviously my governor has endorsed my opponent in this race. And so that's not a, you know, well, it hasn't, it hasn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. I think that's what people have to understand, Heather. Like when I, like, I don't represent Jay Ensley's personal agenda. I represent the people who live in the fifth legislative district. Those are the people in Carnation, Fall City, Snoqualmie, North Bend, Issaquah, you know, all the way down to Maple Valley and Black Diamond. Those are the people I represent. And I know those people would have been better off by having a special session 
And so we could lay out a plan to get kids safely back into school so we could figure out how to get our spending under control, you know, with our state budget. And so to me, that's the reason I argued for it. And yes, it drove the governor crazy that I was going against what he wanted, but I wouldn't change it. You know, it's not like when people say, oh, you can't do that, or I might endorse your opponent. Like that doesn't change what I do. I, I do what I think is right. Did they really say that to you? It, it was made, I, I think people were trying to say, you know, the idea they say is, Mark, you got to be a team player. <laughs> That's the reference that's used. <laughs> and people say, the governor's not calling a special session, so don't make our governor look bad by disagreeing with him. And I'm just like, hey, I understand that this isn't about being a team player and doing what people in Seattle want to do. It's about representing the communities that I represent. And so, and I think definitely, you know, with going back to that op-ed in the Seattle Times, it was made clear to me, like, if I published my view, you know, that was obviously in disagreement with the Washington Education Association, the teachers union, that, that they were going to go after me in the election. I, I think it was very clear to me that that was a possibility. And I did it anyways, because I thought, you know, the argument had to be made. Well, and I, I appreciate that, you know, as, as a citizen. I think that um, at once, a hundred years ago, one of the worst experiences of my life was I ran for local school board. I, <laughs> my, my dad was on the school board in Tequila, where I grew up. It's a very thankless um, job, I will say that. Well, I, know, I didn't win the election. I ran against an incumbent who was a friend of mine, but her views were different from mine, and so I was very naive. I had $100 in my campaign fund, and I went, I'm going to run for school board, see if people want you know, a different view. And one of the things that I kept saying, I remember the first candidates night we had, and the question was asked of my, of my opponent and then, of course, of me, uh, what, how do you see the role? How do you see your role um, as a school board uh, member? And her response was very articulate because she had many years as, on the school board. But basically, her response was, my role is to um, uh, represent the administration. So when they, and, and my ears just went, what? And so when they asked me, I went, well, I see it completely differently. I see it as represent, you know, the, the school has representation. They have an administration. They have paid people. Those, those are the people that are designed and hired and uh, trained to represent the school and the school district. The school board is elected by the citizenry. So in my view, that one position, the school board, is the people's voice in this whole public education thing. And... In the next debate, we were asked a similar question, and I was astounded that my opponent gave the same response that I had given in the first one because people applauded that response. (laughs) (laughs) And I lost, hands down. Actually, I lost by three points to an incumbent um, with my $100 campaign chest, so I actually do take some pride in that. But it's a vicious game, even at the school board level or perhaps because it's at the school board level. That's a vicious game. You folks that go into politics, you have to have some pretty thick skin. And when I'm hearing and reading and, uh, you know, about your particular situation with the governor uh, um, endorsing your um, opponent who has, does not have a track record um, in politics at all, and I, I look at that and I go, you know, uh, the first thought that popped into my mind was, well, that's a little vindictive, isn't it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was. I mean, that's never happened before. No governor's done what Governor Inslee did. And so I think this is my fear is that when people now are representing their district, you know, we have Democrats who are 
representing Aberdeen. And, you know, we have Democrats in Eastern Washington. We have Democrats up in Whatcom County. And I'm worried that when their communities disagree with the governor's agenda now, they're going to be afraid to agree with them because they don't want him coming out and endorsing their opponent if they get primary challenged. And I think by him putting his thumb in the race to try to tilt it towards my opponent, I, I think that it's actually discouraging a lot of healthy policy discussion in Olympia. And, and I think that's why I, I think it's unfortunate that it happened because I, I think everyone should be able to have a discussion with our governor. And, and I'll be clear, he's a nice guy and he's a good father. And, and so I don't have anything to say about bad about Governor Inslee on a personal level. I just think like that what he's done is discouraging vigorous, healthy policy discussion, you know, between mm -hmm. the legislative branch and the executive branch. Well, and the point that I was trying to make is that people who are elected by the populace need to represent that population that they're elected from. And their fealty, if you will, is not to the system. The fealty is to the people who cast their votes for them. That's my view. You know, you have to work with the group to a certain extent. But I worry as a voter and as a citizen that sometimes we lose track of the fact that the number, you know, what, what did they used to say on the Star Trek things, the prime directive? The prime directive is to represent the people who voted for you. And then you have to represent them within the larger group. That's my view. Um, and well, I think that came whole, out with uh, the, car, the governor's carbon tax proposal in 2018 was kind of case in point of this issue, right, where he had a carbon tax proposal. I was very honest with the governor. I said, I don't think our – the people I represent would not support your bill. So, and I, I wasn't, I didn't say this, but I'm in the back of my head. I'm thinking when I got elected in 2012 and 2016, the voters voted for me, neither election did they vote for governor Ensley. in 2012, the voters in the fifth chose Rob McKenna in 2016, they chose bill Bryan. And so in the back of my head, as the governor is telling me I have to vote for his bill, I'm thinking, well, that's just not true. If I'm going to represent the people in the fifth, I have to vote for what they want. And, and he was really upset that I didn't give him the vote he needed on his carbon tax bill. But when he put it into an initiative form and it went to the ballot that fall, you know, it failed in the 5th Legislative District 58% to 42%. It wasn't even close. It lost by 16 points. And, you know, I told myself and my wife when I went to bed after the initiative votes were in that November, I was like, man, I feel a lot better. I would have felt horrible if our district had voted for his bill. And I told him that, you know, I don't think our district's agreeing with you, Governor, like, but I felt vindicated the fact that it got defeated by 16 points. So I know that even though it was frustrating for Governor Ensley that I didn't vote for his carbon tax bill in 2018, I did the right thing by representing the district. And that's what, mm -hmm. as, as everything you just said, Heather, that, at the end of the day, that's what we're elected to do. And that's it. You don't have to make your yeah. job any more complicated than that. Keep your job simple. <laughs> I'm going to keep this segue very simple. We have to do the right thing because we have to take a break. Um, and I hate hey, to do that, well, quite honestly, because we're having a good discussion. Um, but we do have to take a quick break. And so if you will stay with me, uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. Local news, local info. Valley 104.9 FM. 
Hi everybody, this is Jay Fisk, host of Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley. We're the show that's on every week and we talk about nonprofits that help all of us who live, work, and play here in the fabulous Snoqualmie Valley. You can catch us at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday and then we do an encore presentation on Monday at 6.30 p.m. That's 5.30 Sunday evening and 6.30 on Monday for Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Remember to join us at 1 p.m. on Sunday for Animal Radio. Animal Radio is America's most listened to pet show. The nearly two-hour celebration of our pets is hosted by veterinaire talent Hal Abrams and Judy Francis. So tune in, 1 p.m. Sunday, Animal Radio. Welcome back to Valley Talk. I am Heather Stark, your host, and I am having a conversation. I, I think it's a pleasant conversation with uh, senatorial candidate Mark Mullet. Uh, he is the incumbent. He is running opposed by a member of his own party. And we just had a big discussion about an unusual thing that happened to him, which is our governor, who is also of the same party, uh, has endorsed his um, opponent. So that's an unusual thing, and uh, we, we kind of hashed that to death. So I want to move on to some other things, Senator. And one of those things that I want to move on to is um, the whole um, fossil fuels thing. You know, what, what about the fossil fuels? You know, we hear all about this, and everybody's worried about global warming. And, you know, the, what, what's with the fossil fuels thing? For one, I think climate change 100% is real, and it's being caused by the actions of man, and we have to do things to change that immediately. And, you know, we passed one of the strongest bills in the country last year around 100% clean energy, like transitioning to 100% clean energy in the next 25 years. And I voted for that bill, and I'm proud that it passed. Uh, You know, on a personal level, like, you know, I have solar panels in my house. Like, I go to and from Olympia during session. I don't stay down there. I drive home every night because... I have a crap load of kids and I want to see my family, but, uh, you know, I drive an electric car to and from Olympia. And so I think people, when they can, if they're in a financial position where they can do things that they know are going to help the environment, I encourage people to do that through my role in the legislature. Like I'm always on the lookout to find ways, you know, that we can turn the, you know, move the needle on making sure we reverse global warming and climate change. And, And I think it's a, it's an important issue, and, and that's the ironic thing is I disagree with the governor on some things around taxes, but that's my frustration is climate change doesn't mean you create a bunch of taxes that just flow into the general fund of the Washington state budget, and then it vanishes God knows where. I think, you know, if you want to address climate change, do it, but if you're going to tax people, there's a lot of things you can do. Like up in British Columbia with their carbon tax, they give all the money back to the residents of British Columbia through a dividend check. You know, I think that's an idea that I supported way back when we had Carbon Laws, an initiative here. It didn't pass, but I was like, if you're going to do a carbon tax and you're going to give the money back to the people, like that's something I want to talk about. But just to use environmental policy as a backdoor way for unnecessary tax increases, that's where I part ways, I think. And, and that's the big, I think, contrast between my opponent and myself is, is I, I'm going to support the environment, but I'm not going to do it as a way for backdoor unnecessary tax increases. I'm going to do it for things that will, will make, you know, clean air and clean water. Okay. Let's talk Boeing. They finally uh, confirmed today that they are going to be moving, at least according to the Seattle Business Journal, 
uh, that they are, in fact, going to be moving uh, those 1,000 Everett jobs down, or at least most of those jobs, down to South Carolina. Um, what does that say? Well, two questions. One is, I know Boeing was given um, uh, tax incentives to stay, but I'm not shocked by that because, you know, I'm a little long in the tooth. I've been around for a while, and Every community gives some sort of tax incentive to big businesses because they want jobs for their people. Um, I don't see that as a huge shocking, you know, situation. Um, but the governor today or yesterday, I guess, said that he w- if Boeing moves, then they're going to have to take a hard look at those tax incentives. Well, I'm assuming that there's some sort of time frame on those tax incentives. Um, but what, first of all, how do you feel about Boeing moving from uh, most of the, their um, uh, manufacturing from Everett to South Carolina? And secondly, uh, you know, what can, what can you do about it now with tax incentives? Oh, I think it stinks. I mean, I, I think that what we have to make sure we have in Washington is manufacturing jobs and the other tech jobs that have obviously moved here in the last 30 years. Uh, I was born and raised in Tukwila. You know, in my childhood, it seemed like we were primarily a Boeing city. Obviously, that changed us becoming a Microsoft, Amazon, you know, Expedia, Starbucks city. Uh, But at the end of the day, like, you have to fight tooth and nail to keep these manufacturing jobs in our state because our constitution does not let us lure companies because we consider it a gift to public funds. We can't just offer them money to locate a manufacturing plant here. So the way I view it is Washington State has to make sure that we're supporting our manufacturing sector as much as humanly possible. And, and so when the governor says, oh, we have to revisit those things, I'm of the opposite. I, I just disagree with that. I think like you still have a, a huge plant in Renton doing the 737. Like you still have the 777 up in Everett. You still, for another couple of years, you have the 747 cargo planes being built in that big facility that you know, where the 787 was also being built. I want to send a message, not just to Boeing, but to every manufacturer in the state that, that we value manufacturing jobs. And I, you know, I voted for a bill in 2017 where I broke with my own party, but it put every manufacturer in the state at the Boeing rate, which was 0.29% for a B&O rate. You know, traditionally it's at 0.48. And I said, rather than moving Boeing up to, you know, I said, why don't we put everyone at that rate? Because at the end of the day, there's not a single manufacturing job we can afford to lose. And, you know, that bill passed the legislature. The governor vetoed it. I I disagree with his veto of that bill. Otherwise, it would have become law. And and I think that, you know, the fact that we've looked, obviously, and I will confirm, I heard from Boeing this morning that, yes, obviously, they're moving those jobs to South Carolina. I think we're losing 900 to 1,000 jobs in that move. And and to me, it's like we have to send a message to the rest of the manufacturers who are in our state that we value them. And it's not the time to start, you know, raising taxes on the manufacturing sector. I, I think we have to find a way to make sure they know we appreciate them and we want to keep those jobs here. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, as a mom, not every kid wants to be a techie. You know, not every kid wants to sit behind a desk um, for his or her whole life. Uh, a lot of people like, uh, you know, either are directed toward, uh, you know, some sort of manufacturing job or factory job, and some people like it. I have a son who spent for his first 10 years um, out of college just doing manual labor. And to tell you the truth, I think it's made him a much better, well-rounded person because now he is in tech, 
And uh, I, I, I'm with you. I think we need that. I think that um, we need a, a diversity not only in people but also in things that people can do. So, um, yeah, I'm a little. Well, I'll tell you these, but yeah, I'm nervous about it. I mean, they're great. In my pizza restaurant and my ice cream stores, they're great customers too. <laughs> it's like these manufacturing jobs, like. A lot of them are good paying jobs. I mean, I think a lot of the jobs in Boeing, we're talking average pay, 85000 a year. I mean, it's a, they're good jobs. These aren't minimum wage jobs, and, and we need to keep them. So yeah. to me, the Boeing thing should be a wake-up call that we need to find a way, you know, to really make a commitment to our manufacturing sector. And that means not raising taxes. That means going the other way of thinking maybe they should have a, a lower B&O rate. Let's talk uh, quickly about reducing traffic congestion, which is one of your campaign um, um, clauses, I guess is the word. Um, and I, I can't think of too many people who don't want to reduce traffic congestion, but how, you, how do you propose that happen? Well, I mean, to get down in the weeds of, I have an obsession, I think you call it an obsession, with a roundabout at, you know, 203 in Tolt Hill there, you know, the entrance where you come out of Rebelier Farms or if you're coming over you know, from, from 202, it's, you know, to me, that's one of the most dangerous intersections on that stretch of road. And I personally think, you know, it's a state highway. I think that intersection should be a roundabout. I think it would flow traffic a lot better at that point. And, and that's one of the things I want to try to get to the finish line next year, because I think we will, there's a real chance to have a transportation package next year. I mean, we have the highest unemployment rates we've ever had. We have the lowest interest rates we've ever seen. So when you combine a lot of people out of work and it's really cheap to borrow money, like to me, 2021 is the time to do a transportation package, and I want to get a roundabout at that intersection. That's one of my priorities. Now, moving on to the big picture stuff is obviously finishing Highway 18, and you know we made a ton of progress during my time there. And that's what people say, Mark. Why we don't? You know, the far left. You know, this is the argument from my opponent is, you know, you work too much with Republicans. Like you're not standing up for Democratic values. And and I always say. Listen, like, like transportation packages, because you're issuing state bonds, they need a 60% vote. They have to be bipartisan. No party has 60% of the seats in Olympia. And I worked with Republicans to get Highway 18, $150 million for Highway 18 funded way back in 2015. You know, and we're going out for a proposal on that project this fall. I mean, it's going to break ground next year so we can finally fix the interchange at you know, Highway 18 and I-90. We're going to start to widen the road all the way down to Tiger Mountain. We need another $300 million to finish that corridor. That's making it four lanes the entire way in Highway 18. We don't want any more of this two-lane nonsense where we're having head-on collisions and people are getting killed. People are stuck a half-hour extra time every night trying to get to and from work because traffic stinks. So we have a unique window of opportunity next year to finish Highway 18, and, and I'm committed to making that happen. I mean, I feel like I have the relationships with Republicans, and we're going to need their support to get that project on the list, I'm the one who's built relationships across the aisle that can get Highway 18 funded. And I think that's really important for people to understand in this upcoming election, because if, if you don't get it in this transportation package, you're probably waiting another decade for the next one. You know, we can't afford to wait 10 more years. You know, in King County, uh, the county has been telling me and, and us uh, for a couple of years now that they're not going to have any money. In another couple of years, they're not going to have any money for rural road repair. And they, I've interviewed a couple county folks, and they seem to want to blame the state for that. I think 
you know, in my devious little mind, I also read the small print and I see many references to we will not have enough money for rural road repair until we that 1% property tax cap gets lifted. Then we'll magically get enough money for a rural road repair. And in all fairness, I hate King County. So that's just, you know, <laughs> just so everybody knows. Okay. Um, but what role does the state have in that? Because the county is definitely saying they're, they're blaming the state for a large, to a large degree for this supposed lack of funds for rural road repair. Oh, and I'll be honest. I mean, I work with Kathy Lambert, our King County Council member for, you know, Carnation area, and Kathy's great. I mean, she totally, she explains to me that it is real. They do need money, and that's, my point is, I think the state should help out with the county of some of these rural roads, and I think you'd have to do it in a way, though, where the money's super laser hyper-focused. It can't go to something else, you know what I mean? Because I think that being able to upkeep these roads, I think the challenge is, as more cities have incorporated. So if you think about, like when I first got elected, Kwahani was unincorporated King County. So that provided a lot of tax revenue for the county from that you know, neighborhood because they had 11 or 12,000 homes there. So when that get, or 11, 12,000 people, when that got incorporated in King County, they lost a lot of revenue. And that's just kind of an example of what's been happening for the last 20 or 30 years. A lot of areas like Kwahani is now part of Sammamish. Once they went to Sammamish, like a lot of that money now goes into Sammamish Road as opposed to the unincorporated road. So I think Councilmember Lambert has a legitimate point. I think the state has a role to help out counties with rural roads. I really do. And I, I think that is, for me, 100% on the table in this transportation package around how you try to provide some funding because this isn't necessarily obviously building new roads. This is just making sure we don't that we're able to maintain the ones that we have and I don't know. Our district has a lot of rural roads. I mean, it does. Obviously, yeah. you go to these Seattle districts, they don't have any. I mean, they're all city of Seattle well, roads. That's, exactly that's not the it's a lot of rural roads. It's a lot of rural roads that a lot of those city people use on weekends. I mean, have you been through Woodville yeah. during the, you know, the wine season? Have you been to the mountain passes? You know, uh, they're rural roads, but they're used by non-rural people a lot. Um, so I have, I, I just, I don't understand that, that issue. I think, as I said, you know, I mean, I have my prejudice against King County, but I suspect that, you know, gosh, if we can magically remove that 1% property tax lid and then suddenly have the money, uh, to fix these roads, then I'm leery suspicious and, uh, jaded enough to think that there might be something more going on here, but that's me. Okay. <laughs> but I guess, Heather, but my point would be that's why you want state dollars to come in that are dedicated to these, these county rural roads because that would, you know, that could help keep property taxes lower from, from the county because mm-hmm. it would, if they're saying that's what they need, my point is I agree that we need money for rural roads and I think it should be on the table for this transportation package that, that we have a bucket of money go to that exact purpose. And so I'm open-minded to it. So I think we have to but I just don't want it going into the abyss. You know what I mean? I don't want to say we're just going to send in this money to King County. They can do whatever they want with it for their transportation budget. No, I think it should be laser focused on rural roads. <laughs> like, I don't want it yeah. to be able to swept into the, any other, you know, pet project people come up with. And I think that's where the devil's in the details. Yeah. You know, I, I'm looking at the time again and I'm going, we're going to have to take another little break, but I want to talk 
unemployment office when we come back. I'll give you a couple moments to think about that one because I'm just as acerbic about that as I am. (laughs) I'm just as acerbic (laughs) about unemployment as I am the rural road repair. So uh, let's take a quick break, and then we will come back and we'll tackle the unemployment office. You're listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. I'm your host, Heather Stark. We'll be right back. You're listening to Valley 104.9, your station for Valley Talk and information. You're alone in the car. You don't know why. You're just not sure. There was something up there, something out there. You heard it. You saw the eyes. The radio was on. It was Desert Oracle Radio on Valley 104.9 Community Radio, Sundays at 8 p.m. Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. There are three good reasons why you want to listen to the Children's Hour. One is because it has nice music, and two is because there are kids in it, and three is because there's lots of good, nice stories that you might want to hear. Educational entertainment for the whole family. I love the Children's Hour. Kids Public Radio. Sundays at 10 a.m. on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark, your host. With me is Senator Mark Mullet, a candidate for a fifth for our fifth legislative district uh, Senate office in the state. And we've been having a good conversation, I think, about several of the issues. You know, when we read the uh, newspapers and we read uh, campaign literature, uh, it's very difficult to sift out, you know, what what actually is the meaning of some of these things. Um, you get uh, a comment of, well, this person is not in favor of such and such because of some action they took. And and you don't get a whole story. So I appreciate, Senator, you're coming on the show so that we can talk a little bit more in depth and get, a, get more of a sense of the larger picture rather than just the, the little soundbite things that may or may not be an accurate situation. That being said, and uh, I've been trying to be very open here about my prejudices and unemployment. What a mess our state unemployment office is. Granted, they were kind of gobsmacked by the whole COVID thing. Nevertheless, they have hired 1,500 people in the last few months. And so staffing shouldn't be a huge problem at this point. And yet we still have 30, 40, 50,000 people who are still in the system trying to get some benefit. And I all I hear, you know, and this is puzzling to me. I have no, no uh, uh, a dog in this fight I, I, as far as personnel. But I must say, all I hear are wonderful things about how capable the director of the unemployment office is. And I have to say, I have seen little fiascos like this over my lifetime. And whether justly or unjustly, somebody's had roles when this happens in a, in a public office, nobody's had has rolled over this. And that surprises me. What's your take on the whole unemployment office? I mean, I'm pissed about it. I think it's been a, it's been a real disaster this year. And I can't tell you how many constituents I've had reach out to me who are sitting there for three slash four months. I mean, they're freaking out because they can't pay their bills and they're waiting, you know, for ESD, the employment security department to, tell them whether or not their claims valid and they're going to get paid. And, and I think it was really frustrating. I think, you know, you go back to this argument of special session, <laughs> like this was, you know, I wanted to have a special session in June and employment security department was top of the line. I was like, this is, this is not going to work people. Like, and I think 
had there been a special session in June, I, I think there's two people whose jobs, you know, would have been on the line. One's obviously ESD, I think. That would have been up for discussion, uh, the department head there. And then you also had our chief technology officer. I think everything goes back to the decision in April, which was to get rid of this two-factor authentication. I can't even say that right. And uh, But it used to always be with unemployment that they had two different ways to make sure you were who you said you were. And when they made the choice to turn that off in April, that's what opened up you know, the floodgates for the fraud. Once you had the floodgates open for the fraud, now all the legitimate people who are filing claims you know, were getting screwed because they, weren't, they were not having to wait because people were like paranoid that everyone was part of the fraud system. And it all goes back to that decision that was made by those two department heads to turn off what has always been our way to make sure somebody is who they say they are. And the second they turned off that second verification point, everything went horribly wrong. And like you just said, Heather, normally when you make a decision of that magnitude and you're wrong, it's not saying that you're not a nice person. It's just is saying there's consequences to making important decisions like that and getting them wrong. And I think you're right. There hasn't been any consequences. And, and I think the legislature should be there to, to do public hearings on this and find out what happened. I mean, you can't do a public hearing if the governor doesn't call us down for a special session. And so now, you know, I'm sitting here on my couch talking to you, and it's frustrating. But isn't there a way that the legislature can require uh, – isn't there a way – it seems to me I read somewhere that if there are enough legislators who are going, we want a special session, that they can, in fact, make that happen despite the governor. Am I wrong on that? But, I read – I was but, reading it somewhere. But, but look at what's happened this year, right? Like when I stood up to the governor, whether it's on special session or his carbon tax, he came in and endorsed my opponent. Do you really think that's encouraging a lot of my fellow Democrats to want to stand up to the governor? Because – it isn't. You know what I mean? It's like this is the reality of it is people you – know, I've been willing to stand up to do what I think is right to represent our district. That's obviously – I mean I've had $720,000 of special interest money you know, out of these groups you know, like SCIU and WEA spent against me already. That was as of September 30th yesterday. They spent twice as much against me than they did any other spot anywhere in the state. You know what I mean? I mean that's why people are hesitant to stand up and do what I'm doing is because – Politically, people will come after you. And so I think that's the reason we haven't had a special session is it, it does make your life politically more challenging, even though it's the right thing to do. Like you have to acknowledge, right, the situation I'm in is more politically challenging than people who have just been a team player. Yeah. Well, and that's as a, as a citizen, that scares me. That scares me because when allegiance to the group becomes stronger than the allegiance to the electorate, I worry about that. I worry yeah, but about our that. Voters, and our voters, Heather, in the 5th District are going to be able to decide that. Our voters are going to be the ones. They get a vote on November 3rd, and they get to decide, do they want people to be, have an allegiance to the quote-unquote Democratic team, or do they want someone who has an allegiance to their community, the 5th Legislative District? And that's what I need voters to really understand more than anything else. That's what this election is about, is – Yes, I have ruffled feathers, you know, standing up to these special interest groups, standing up to Governor Hensley. Would I do anything different? No, I wouldn't. I would do everything the same. I think I did it because I was representing our nation and the rest of the communities in the 5th Legislative District. The problem with all of that, and you're absolutely true, uh, but the problem is, is that, you know, our urban population carries most of the, you know, I mean, in, in your But not in this race, not in the, the 5th, not in the 5th District Senate race. It's very evenly distributed. You know, very evenly no. distributed. So very good. Very good. Yeah. Okay. 
we've talked um, uh, about reducing traffic congestion and, and uh, the whole situation with schools. What about health care? We didn't, we didn't cover that one, and that's a big one. And, you know, under health care, I also want to talk about domestic violence. You know, for a year, I've, I've, I, my, one of my master's degrees is an MPA, um, which I read you had an MPA as well. So, you know, I, yeah. you, you, you obviously have done more with your MPA than I have. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> one, of, one of the things um, about um, – uh, well, you know what? Never mind. I'm, I'm going to do a, a, a Biden here. Never mind. I don't want to go down that track. <laughs> But you know, one of the sure, okay. That, <laughs> you pick the topics. I'll talk about whatever you want to. <laughs> so. One of the things that I I, I found one of my, the reason I said about my MPA is it's a, from UC Denver with a focus in domestic violence. So domestic violence is an issue that has been uh, on my radar and that I've worked very conscientiously with for fifteen twenty years, and it was very popular for a while there. But now I don't hear anything about it. And I consider that part of the health care issue. So throwing that out, talk, please, and I, uh, tell and, us about well, your issues on health care and whether or not or how domestic violence comes under that for you. Well, please sleep better than I, Heather. I can promise you that we talk about it all the time. Like I was on the health care committee for a while in Olympia, and it was always a big focus for us on that committee. And it didn't matter. I mean, when it comes to domestic violence, you found an issue that, doesn't have any partisan tilt to it, right? Republicans, Democrats, everybody understands it's a big problem. We have to find ways to address it. And, uh, and so I think, I don't know, I, I think there are, people are aware of how important it is. So I don't want you to think that it's an issue that's being ignored. And I think, you know, some of the stuff we've had, you know, on some of the gun responsibility measures have been specifically targeted around, you know, this is what voters in our district have approved by initiative, also at the state level, they approved it. But it was saying if someone's in a domestic violence incident, maybe you want to say, hey, yes, you have Second Amendment rights, but they might temporarily here in this case because there is a domestic violence incident. We don't want you to have easy access to a weapon because we've seen too many times how that ends poorly. And that's been something the voters were able to, to move the needle on through the initiative process. And so we've had, had some progress in this issue. But as you point out, even though we've made progress, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of work. Yeah. Well, and just last week, you know, we, we saw another uh, shooting, uh, two, two, three shootings, you know, in, in the area. And so I, in Seattle area. Well, I think and, it's, just, and I think yesterday up in Edmonds, right? In Edmonds, somebody got shot on domestic well, we, violence. Once again, I think they got broken up and he came into the grocery store and shot her where she worked at. Her. I mean, it's, it's a real, but I think it goes back to me. A lot of that does connect back into mental health, you know, one of the mistakes, what we can't do as we come out of COVID is, is cut the mental health funding. It's just, there's a lot of places I think we can save money. You know, I was obviously against giving our state employees a 3% pay raise back on July 1st. That's been a big, you know, difference between my opponent and myself because I was like, we're going to need that money. I don't want to cut a single penny for mental health. Like if our state employees who've been getting substantial raises the last few years had to go without a raise for a year, to me, that's where you pick up, you know, three or four hundred million dollars. I do not want to go back in a session in January and have discussions about cutting mental health funding because we can't afford it. We saw in the 08, 09 recession that that's one of the worst mistakes you can make because during recessions, people need more mental health support. And I think right now with COVID, people are going nuts. I mean, nuts. This is totally thrown. I think a lot more people are going through mental health crises now than ever. And so I think that's right. one of the reasons how you prioritize your budgeting is important. And that's what I always say. 
people are like, oh, don't you like state employees? And I'm like, I love state employees. I work with them. I think they're awesome. They're dedicated. But I'm just saying, like, if, you know, if they had to go without the 3% pay raise on July 1st of this year, and that frees up three or $400 million to make sure that during our difficult budget times, we don't have to cut anything for mental health. If anything, maybe we can add some more money there. You know, that's a worthwhile trade-off, in my opinion. It's all about how you prioritize spending in the legislature. Mm-hmm. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the governor's raise go through as well? Yeah, probably. I'm, <laughs> you could be right. I wasn't <laughs> tracking that. I was looking more at the big like picture of, yes, the state employee <laughs> did, yeah. but he may have. And now, in the governor's defense, I don't think he has any control over, I think there's a salary commission that determines that. So the governor does not get a negotiate his own pay raise. There's a completely nonpartisan salary commission that I think sets that stuff out. And so I'm not going to, I'll disagree with Ensley on things, but I'm not going to give him any headaches over that one. <laughs> well, I know a lot of uh, uh, people who got those raises, a lot of officials, um, including, I believe, Dwayne Davidson, whom I interviewed. Um, uh, I've interviewed him a couple of times. Most He's recently, a long maybe. time. His, his, his family like, goes back deep into Carnation. What? They've been around Carnation yes. for a long time. And he took his raise and uh, and dedicated it toward um, uh, a particular program, uh, state state budget, and gave it back. So I've um, and I've done I had, and I've done mine via Squaw Food and Clothing Bank. So you know that's what I've done with mine is because at the end of the day, you can say give the money back to the state, but you still pay taxes on it. And so for me, the much better choice has been to donate at the Squaw Food and Clothing Bank. I used to be a board member there before, you know, before mm-hmm. I was elected to the state Senate. And, uh, and so I've always donated my pay raises like that from the state, the Esquad Food and Clothing Bank, and it helps them out tremendously. And so, yeah, you're right. Everyone has yeah. a choice of what they can do with that pay raise. Well, and I think as, as just an ordinary human being, I always say that, you know, I, and I, I grant you just as, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sexist because I look at our government and I think, you know, what we should do is we should just purge everybody and just get a bunch of women who've had large families who run the household finances and elect them to public office. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I might like to see that experiment. That sounds like a good experiment to me. That's, that's not too crazy. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're running a family and you're running family finances, you know that, okay, you know what, that particular um, uh, thing that you need is, could, could be very valid. Absolutely, you do need it. But you know what, we don't have the money, so you're going to have to wait or you're going to have to get a substitute. It has nothing to do, I, I think, for me, when but I look I think, at our yeah. governmental budget, I see, oh, this, this is a good cause, so we have to do it. Well, there's a million good causes. There are always going to be a million good causes, but you can't fund everything all at the same time. And I don't see that discrimination happening um, at a governmental level. To to me, as a layperson, I don't see it. I'm sure you involved in it, you do see it. But it seems like every good thing that comes up, it, it's like, well, we just have to do it. We have to do this. Um, but the fact but is I think that's only- Heather. I think that's why I got elected is – you know, going back to 2012 when I first ran, they were like, oh, he's another Democrat. But I picked up a lot of Republican votes in 2012 and 2016 because they saw me working in my restaurants. I mean, these are people who are like, oh, this guy owns a pizza restaurant. He owns an ice cream store. I see him in there. And, and that was, I think, where they had more confidence that because I was a small business owner who literally, like you just said, you're managing finances like down to the crouton. I mean, you're like making sure you're not wasting money anywhere. And, and that's where I think I was able to kind of get some Republicans 
obviously our district really only voted for Republicans. And when I got elected in 2012, that changed. But I definitely think it was what you just pointed out. It's people want someone who understands finances and budgeting. And I think coming out of COVID with this, you know, the massive unemployment rates and the huge government shortfalls, it's like, yeah, if you're going to put someone in there who just says raise taxes to fill the hole, like that's a disaster for the families in our district. Like we have to make prioritized budgeting decisions. It's that simple. That's what I'm going back to do if I get elected next session. And, yeah. and that's another big well, difference between my opponent and myself. I mean, the Seattle Times endorsement interview, she said, I, I don't know any program I would cut. And I was like, well, that's, you know, that just means you just want to raise taxes for everything then. <laughs> you know, that's the <laughs> that's challenge. <code>. <laughs> that's the code for raising taxes. Senator, I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, you know what, we're almost out of time. And you actually just answered my last question because my question was going to be, uh, should you be elected? What is going to be your focus when you return? And so thank you for jumping the gun on answering my question because it helps our timing. I have enjoyed our conversation. Um, I uh, really enjoy the comprehensiveness of your interests and your experience, and I've enjoyed um, speaking with you. So I thank you for sharing uh, what's going on with you and uh, your candidacy with our listeners, and uh, I would say good luck, and I will say the same thing to your opponent uh, in, in the election. Thank you for coming on board with us and sharing all of this conversation, and should you be elected, please come back. You know, we uh, and then I can really give you a hard time. <laughs> hey, you have my cell phone. I'm always happy to be on there. So thanks. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Valley Talk. Welcome to Happy News. I'm Daisy Oz. In this episode, I'll be talking about growing kids' confidence for their greater happiness. In the book, Kid Confidence, Help Your Child Make Friends, Build Resilience, and Develop Real Self-Esteem, author Eileen Kennedy Moore encounters kids struggling with low self-esteem. Somehow, some kids are equating self-worth with being impressive. So she says that the key to fostering healthy self-esteem isn't to try to convince children that they're great, but to help them soften harsh self-judgment and connect with something bigger than themselves, and to reduce self-focus by practicing what she calls a quiet ego. Some examples of a quiet ego state are mindfulness, a focus on the present moment without judgment. Several studies have found that children as young as preschool age who took school-based mindfulness meditation programs had less stress and aggression, plus greater cognitive performance. Parents can also role model more mindfulness to inspire their kids. Next is flow, a state of being completely immersed in a project or learning experience that challenges us. You may observe your child immersed in flow while building Legos, drawing, shooting baskets, or studying bugs. Flow happens when kids are so engaged that they lose track of time and are utterly unselfconscious. By encouraging children to engage in uninterrupted activities, they can experience flow, where time stands still. Another quiet ego state is compassion, a concern for those who are suffering and the desire to help. To build compassion, parents can role model actions by how they respond to others' suffering. Children can also care for their friends' well-being or get involved in volunteer work. And finally, she elucidates on the sentiment of awe, a feeling of wonder and amazement that comes in the presence of something bigger than ourselves. 
Children might catch a taste of awe by watching the sunset, seeing animals in the wild, or gazing at the night stars. Introducing more mindfulness, flow, compassion, and awe into their lives helps children ease away from constant self-evaluation and empathize with others more. Being able to let go of the question, am I good enough, opens children up to creating a richer, fuller life. I'd like to leave you with a happy quote. To the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. Dr. Seuss. My source for kid confidence came from the Greater Good Science Center. I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. And I want you to be happy. Check out my archive shows and more at daisyoz.com. Happy News is produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Chewila, Washington. My theme music was provided by John Bartman.